Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Congress has passed a $1.5 trillion appropriations measure to keep government open. Despite crippling sanctions that threaten to collapse the Russian economy, Vladimir Putin is ramping up the brutality of his assault on Ukraine. As Volodymyr Zelensky warns, the war has reached a strategic turning point. Russian oligarchs are scrambling to hide their assets, including by flowing capital to the UAE. Washington shot down a Polish proposal to hand over MiGs to Ukraine via a U.S. base in Germany. But the Pentagon will send more anti-armor and anti-air weapons to Ukraine. China is helping spread Russian disinformation. Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's key meeting with Putin. South Korea's election of a new conservative president. North Korea's continued ICBM testing. And Iran nuclear talks. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and teaching in Paris uh, at the uh, Academy at Sciences Po, uh, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week. And tune in to the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space each week. Michael, I'm going to give you a moment to bask in the glow and take a victory lap. You called it. We have a $1.5 trillion omnibus um, uh, that averts uh, a full year uh, CR, also a nice chunk of money for uh, Ukraine uh, aid. Walk us through what's in the package and what's it mean. All right. I won't take any time to gloat. I'm just glad that it passed because the alternative was was unthinkable. Um, So, uh, you know, we mentioned in order to get to a deal, the Republicans were insisting on parity between uh, defense and non-defense domestic discretionary, because the initial bills had non-defense domestic discretionary <clears throat> increased spending by uh, over 13%, uh, and defense was about uh, 5%, uh, including uh, what, the, what the, uh, they had agreed to with adding money in the NDAA, which they had agreed to on, on the Senate side initially. But in order to get parity, they actually, the Democrats did agree to bring those numbers down. So the non-defense domestic discretionary was brought down to 6.7%, and defense was raised to an increase of 5.6%. So pretty much uh, you know, 0.9% difference. So that was considered parity. Uh, even so, the House had to divide these bills into two. So they passed the omnibus into, in two bills. One was considered you know, a defense national security bill, which you know, the bulk of it was the defense bill, uh, commerce justice uh, state, which also includes NASA, uh, Department of Homeland Security, and also the Intelligence Authorization Bill. And that passed by a large margin of 361 uh, to 69. Uh, the second part, which was, was considered non-defense, uh, also passed by a big margin, about uh, 260 uh, to 171. Uh, uh, and it did, as you mentioned, include uh, Ukraine aid, which the uh, um, House and Senate agreed to increase beyond the administration's request. The administration requested $10 billion. Uh, the House and Senate gave them uh, almost $14 billion. Uh, split pretty equally, about $6.5 billion of that 
will go to the Department of Defense. Uh, and the remaining um, six plus will go to uh, State Department primarily and then a few other uh, departments and agencies. But it wasn't without any drama. I mean, remember, we talked last week about uh, COVID relief being asked for by the administration, $22.5 billion to be added into the omnibus. Uh, that number was cut down to $15 billion, and the agreement was it would be uh, offset by uh, rescissions to the other COVID relief package that was $1.9 trillion earlier this year, the American Rescue Plan, uh, that money was unspent. Uh, but <clears throat> blue state governors uh, revolted against that, called their House members, and they came in and said they would not support this uh, if the money was offset. So the COVID relief money was taken out, and that will be voted on as a separate bill uh, next week when, when the House comes back into session. And, and even if it does pass the House, it's un very unlikely that that would pass the Senate. So I think COVID relief is dead. So that passed the, the House on Wednesday night. Uh, last night, the Senate passed their version, um, uh, well, the version of, of the omnibus. So this was not without drama in the, the Senate as well. Um, several, many senators insisted that the, they consider amendments to the omnibus in order to agree to allow it to uh, proceed to final passage. All those amendments failed, fortunately, because if any of them had passed, would, the bill would have had to go back to the House. But there were, even though it did pass with a bipartisan vote, it was surprising that 31 Senate Republicans voted against final passage. And that included many members of the Armed Services Committee, uh, Defense Appropriations Subcommittee, uh, the Intelligence Committee, and the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, and their primary complaint was uh, that the bill was 2,700 pages long and didn't have a chance to review it. I would argue, even if they had a few more days, none of them would have spent the time reviewing it. But at least this is passed. Now, they did actually, at the same time, pass a CR just to make sure that the Senate had enough time to enroll the bill and get it to the president for signature because the president has to sign the, uh, the on the bus today. So in case he hasn't signed on time, there is a CR that was passed by the House and Senate that buys him time uh, until March 15th. But as I've been saying all along, this is a happy ending. And uh, very quickly, uh, any any word on any additional money and where we are on the discussion? Uh, Adam Smith and a number of other uh, lawmakers have been talking about significantly more money um, in the wake of Ukraine and focused on better and more quickly uh, deterring China from miscalculating and doing the same thing in Taiwan. Where are we on any discussions on what that top line increase is going to look like? Because the administration's uh, national security strategy, national defense strategy, and budget submission are in part being delayed as everybody goes back, sharpens their pencils, and see whether or not there's any additional stuff that we need to do, given that was before Russia invaded Ukraine. Right. And so this bill that passed uh, yesterday is $29 billion above the president's budget request you know, for the Pentagon. Uh, we're expecting... Uh, from what we understand, uh, a budget request of around 770 uh, from the administration. People on the Hill are already talking about adding about 44 billion to that uh, to get to 814. Uh, I've talked to Republicans and Democrats about that. No one seems to be flinching at that number. And you know, who knows where we'll be when the time comes? I anticipate that number possibly even being higher than that, uh, not accounting for additional aid aid to Ukraine. So a lot of activity on the Hill right now. A lot of members asking. Uh, the contractors downtown, what they can and can't do uh, to get equipment into theater uh, to assist Ukraine, especially from members who have been uh, traveling to Poland and other NATO countries uh, and meeting with the Ukrainians as well, have a lot of questions as to what we can do. And there seems to be strong bipartisan support, bipartisan support for this. So I anticipate uh, much more spending in the future. Um, I'm, uh, I'm curious the extent to which 
Um, I, I think in part what Vladimir Putin is doing is a vindictive. If I can't have Ukraine, I'm going to destroy it. And whether he just withdraws and leaves the rebuilding bill, right? I mean, he's in no shape to do that rebuilding and whether or not we're the ones who are going to end up stuck um, with that tab. Uh, Dove, let me just quickly bring you into this conversation as a former Pentagon controller. Um, talk to us a little bit about the measure, what you think uh, it means uh, and whether or not we need to be invoking the Defense Production Act in some capacity. We are shipping a lot of very, uh, you know, key capabilities to Ukraine. And there are a number of friends of mine in Europe and even in the U.S. military going like, holy crap, I didn't even know we had stocks that big. At what point do we need to start uh, replenishing them? Well, uh, for a start, uh, I agree with Mike that the number is going to go up. I think the, the issue is going to be... Um, how much the administration has already taken this into account. I was speaking to one very senior Pentagon official who said to me, look, uh, we've been no we've noticed the, the Russian buildup for the last three months. And so we've already been changing the national defense strategy, you know, over that period. So it's not like they're rushing at the last minute to do something. Having said that, uh, the, the problem that Biden faces is that uh, increasing defense is going to get him hit very hard by the uh, progressive left. you got to remember, they wanted to reduce the defense budget by 10% for the previous fiscal year. That is 22. So he's got to balance that off. He's got a, uh, an election coming up in, in just seven months. Uh, and so uh, where he comes out is going to be really interesting. He, and, and of course, they know that Congress is going to plus it up. The danger with annual plus ups is that you can't make long term plans that hurts industry. It hurts the Pentagon. It hurts the overall defense structure. Um, but uh, in a way, it, it's it's better, obviously, than having uh, supplementals every year. But in a way, it's almost the same thing, because in effect, what Congress does is create a, a, a plus up supplemental. Now, on the Defense Production Act, uh, yeah, look, our stocks are usually much, much greater than people realize. Uh, that's how we're able to, for instance, when I was many years ago, when I was in charge of resupplying the British, I took all kinds of stuff. Uh, people didn't realize how much we had. Our own military people didn't. Um, and so we, we may come to a point where we have to uh, invoke the Defense Production Act. And I suspect that part of that uh, six and a half billion that uh, Michael just mentioned, uh, a lot of it is, is this exactly that, to replenish uh, the systems that we're giving away. Uh, and remember also, we're only giving away certain systems. There's a big fight uh, over whether we should transfer patriots to the Poles, to the Ukrainians, uh, reason being that they, they'll have to train up for that. Well, maybe, how long would it take to train? In any event, the administration doesn't want to do that it's really limiting itself to a, a relatively small number of weapon systems. I, I just want to point out that earlier today, um, John Kirby, the Pentagon spokesman, said uh, that the administration is actually trying to work with its allies and partners to get like um, Russian-made or former Soviet uh, equipment, uh, air defense equipment, uh, in larger numbers to Ukraine that the Ukrainians would be able to easily absorb and use. So, I mean, those are the kinds of weapons they want yeah, uh, but to, that, to but that's get. Not you know, with all due respect, but that's not pushback. We're talking, you asked me about the Defense Production Act, of, you know, what we would have to replenish. Right. And if we're giving stuff, if we're not giving the stuff, but our NATO allies are, and it's not 
American uh, equipment, it's uh, former Soviet equipment, then the Defense Production Act doesn't come into it. Uh, it'll only come in if we keep on supplying more and more stingers and javelins in particular, and the, the latest versions of these systems, which, by the way, we're not giving right now. Uh, if we do that, then we may have to invoke the act. But I think that's down the road. Jim, uh, you're joining us from Paris at one of uh, the world's leading uh, institutions for uh, political science, international affairs, and and, and strategy. Um, let me ask you, I, I, I want to get to a Ukraine-specific question in a second, but I just want to ask you a, a broader one. Russia really is setting the terms of this conflict. Um, Putin has made clear he's not going to budge. Um, what we're trying to do is um, economically destroy him, destabilize him as average Russians uh, feel ever more pain, right? I mean, the basic compact the Putin has with his people is me and my cronies stay in charge. You live a comfortable life. You give up freedom. I give you continued economic comfort. That entire paradigm now is shattered. So there are friends of mine uh, who are Russian and Russian analysts say that this uh, could come to a head far more quickly uh, at, at the end of the day. But still, on the battlefield, he's driving forward. He's trying to set the conditions for uh, the debate and discussion. He's not budging. And his idea is to sort of push us uh, through our own goalpost uh, if, if, if he can. Um, I guess the question is that we had convinced ourselves that we can do, you know, that, that sanctions and, and not force are the right tools, that a future war would, wouldn't involve things as primitive as tanks and artillery and rockets, uh, that it would be, you know, bloodless. It would involve cyber, space, capital markets, right? Nuclear-powered adversaries are never going to clash like this. Um, are, are, are folks and even your peers at this point reconsidering some of these assumptions that we've taken quite comfortably as fact for the last couple of decades? Well, it's a, it's, it's a great question, uh, Vago. I, um, you know, the, what's, what I'm finding interesting, um, which is something you didn't ask, but I will throw your way, is that in my class uh, of uh, very good grad students, so they're in their early 20s, they're from all over the world. Uh, and, um, and I found myself a bit surprised hearing some of their perspectives um, particularly, um, I had a student from India and a student from Lebanon, and they said, look, you know, we don't like what Putin is doing. We think this is, uh, this is a tragedy. This is horrible. Uh, you know, but, he, that, but they said, but you know, that while we don't like what Putin is doing and we don't support what Putin is doing and our heart breaks over Ukraine, what the U.S., you know, we, we see the U.S. acting in a, in a, in a uh, in a way that is not that exactly something we could follow either. They said that uh, you know, you know, you you go up and you uh, you you invaded Iraq, you invaded Afghanistan, you've done all of these things in the Middle East. Um, you know, why isn't there a double standard here? And they said they said there's they said in the social media in the Middle East and among a lot of their friends, it's not necessarily that they, it's an apples to apples comparison between the United States and the Middle East and Russia and Ukraine, but they're making this point that the US covers itself in this uh, cloth of purity and uh, leading the nations against this evil Putin, which is true, he is evil, but the US, you, you do things and break crockery all the time too. Uh, and this is the, the perspective from the Middle East. So there's not a lot of love for the United States necessarily as the cavalry coming into the rescue, but, but the U.S. acting in a hypocritical, uh, hypocritical way. And, and the student from uh, India said, you know, 
you, the thing about the sanctions, you, you all need to understand that while you might be able to absorb the impact of a lot of these sanctions in the United States, in India, for instance, we depend on Russia for ingredients that go into fertilizer. And if we're not gonna, if we're having to choke that off, the uh, farmers in India are gonna rise up as one and storm the capital. And we have seen them do that in the recent past. And so for us, as we look at these sanctions regimes, as much as we don't want the, to, to, to support Putin, um, we can't exactly fall in behind the United States because the sanctions are gonna hit us much differently than the United States. And so whether it's at the UN Security Council or elsewhere, we can't raise our voice as loud as you want us to because we, we have severe problems on, for us in terms of these sanctions. So I, I raise that because I, you know, I was very surprised to hear that because I assumed we were all linking, linking our arms as a unified effort, et cetera, et cetera, on a global basis. But, but there are issues, whether it's dealing with, on the one hand, uh, the, being able to handle sanctions. Uh, and certainly the energy part of that in Europe is, is a big deal in terms of nations hanging on for the long term in terms of dealing with uh, energy shortages. But on the other hand, in the Middle East, particularly, maybe some other parts of the world, the image of the United States as the guy in the white hat on the on leading the charge to deal with the bad guy, while we consider ourselves that, particularly in this case, they're also shaped by their, their remembrance of the United States that was part of the problem in their back, backyard. Uh, and so it's, so it's interesting uh, getting that kind of perspective. I'm not sure that's what you were looking for, but I think that's something to think about. But that is something that would be reflective, right, of an, of an Indian mindset and, and certainly folks in, in, in the Middle East. Um, what are you getting uh, in terms of how to think about use of force from your European counterparts and friends, because I think that ultimately we have always assumed, right? I mean, and the president of the United States and a lot of senior people have said, you know, it, it, he, that Putin may not stop uh, once he finishes uh, Ukraine, um, no, that he may right. take a, a step elsewhere. So, you know, are, are folks really reconsidering that actually, yes, a, a, a motivated leader who, who wants to do something, even in a nuclear era, will will take steps and sanctions enough may not be i mean i guess i'm going to the question of whether or not we end up fighting this guy in an ideal situation he packs up and goes home and i want to get to dove in a moment who's got a peace uh, proposal on the other hand he may not and do we end up you know is it is it better you know we're stopping fighters for example from being exported when actually we may end up fighting him Right. Is it better to start fighting him in Ukraine than it is necessarily to fight him on NATO territory six months from now? Right. And I would say there's there's in Europe, there is probably people at NATO, maybe in some of the MOD, some of the capitals that might be thinking along those lines. Where is it better to to, to deal with this guy? Uh, but I think generally over here and this is just based on just a little bit of anecdotal. because I, I just I just have gotten here. I think there is true concern among by and the man in the street, the person in the street, that um, if this escalates, they could have war, potentially a nuclear war uh, in, in, in Europe uh, and something that they're really afraid of. So the idea that um, we, wouldn't, um, es we wouldn't provide the uh, MiG-29s because the administration was a fate of escalation, um, that fear of escalation I think is held here too. Uh, that uh, hoping he will pack up and go away is something that they really 
every finger and toe is crossed because they don't want to see a war breaking out in Europe. Um, but at the same time, um, most allies, from what I can tell, they're increasing defense spending, still not as fast as they need to, and a bit late, by the way. So I'm not so sure if the horses have already left the barn when it comes to increasing defense spending and all of that. Um, but so there is, so there, there's not marching in the streets like 1968, you know, warmongering, peace, bring peace home, you know, that kind of thing. There's not that breaking out. I think there's, there is a horror that what is happening in Ukraine and a lot of support. I went to a huge demonstration in Paris a few days ago against uh, Putin uh, and against what he's doing. I mean, there's no love for Putin uh, around here. Uh, and um, certainly an understanding that, uh, um, that we're gonna have to do more on defense. But at the same time, in terms of where do we fight him? Do we fight him in NATO? Do we fight him you know, on NATO territory? Do we fight him in, uh, um, in Ukraine? I think there's still among, uh, on the person of, with the person on the street, there's still a great fear that there's gonna be a fight at all with him. I think, but, but if you ask someone here, so what do you think is gonna happen? What should we do? They throw their hands up and they just don't know. I, I think there's a great, um, you know, like everyone, we don't know how this is gonna play out and they don't either, but they do know that if it plays out in terms of a wider war, they're gonna catch it here in Europe and they don't want that to happen. Dove, I wanna uh, bring you into the discussion and ask you uh, two questions. I wanna get to your piece uh, in just a moment. You wrote a, a thoughtful article that just uh, ran minutes ago uh, on the Hill, what will it take to end Russia's war uh, in Ukraine, creative uh, diplomacy? Uh, I wanna get to that in, in, in a moment, but I wanna sort of build um, the, the question about whether or not, I mean, P Putin has been playing this brilliantly. Um, he is changing the dynamic, right? Indicating uh, the fighter jets uh, to Ukraine were a red line. The United States is abiding by this. Uh, on the other hand, he's also making a domestic case to actually go to war against the United States and the West, right? Saying, telling the Russian people it's American and Western weapons that are killing your sons and husbands and brothers. You know, they're developing chemical weapons uh, in Ukraine, right? I mean, we must stop them. We're trying to denazify uh, this, this uh, country. And sometimes we see these sanctions could break them. Uh, and there is a widespread perception that it's going to work. So it's a race, <laughs> whether he can finish what he wants to do in Ukraine before he gets forced from office. On the other hand, we've seen that when, you know, we've no nation has been sanctioned like this, uh, but we also have noticed that sometimes there is a rally the flag, right? All the rats around them are still rats and they're going to cling to them uh, ultimately. D does this, how does this end up in, in, in your mind? Um, you know, as Putin sort of hides behind a nuclear shield as he keeps trying to advance his interests, right? I mean, it's a test of wills. He wants to show he's going to prevail. Well, look, the sanctions are hurting, but remember the Russian people, as a people, have put up with unbelievable privation. Think Leningrad in World War II. Um, and that is something, as I think I've mentioned on this program, uh, on this podcast, uh, where else in the world do veterans constantly walk around with all their medals on their on their just everyday suits? Uh, Russia's different that way, and we better stop mirror imaging. Now, sanctions tend not to work in the short term to the extent you want them to. Uh, meanwhile, Putin, who remember he was prime minister when he leveled Grozny in Chechnya, 
completely leveled, used the cluster bombs, used thermobaric weapons, all the stuff. He didn't care. And he's going to do the same thing here. Uh, and and so one assumption has to be that he's going to keep on going unless he finds at some point that uh, the resistance on the part of the Ukrainians, and that's really my other assumption, is going to continue as well. It's probably not going to be in the next couple of weeks, but at some point he, uh, offering him an off ramp just might work. But this guy is quite comfortable. You know, look, he bombs cancer wards. He bombs maternity hospitals. He just doesn't care. And if you look at what Grozny looked like in 2001, that's what Kiev might look like and Kharkiv might look like. And Mariupol is already looking like. So um, I don't know that the sanctions will work in, 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 at the same pace that he is working at. Uh, the nuclear thing is a huge issue uh, because it, it clearly is stymieing the Biden administration. People can argue whether he should or should not have taken uh, all American military participation off the table, whether he should have said, in fact, all options are open. But they are spooked by the fact that Russian military doctrine, like Soviet military doctrine, has this notion of what's called escalate to de-escalate, which means using nuclear weapons in order to shape everything else. And Putin's threatened that. Um, our own intelligence people have said that. So, and uh, beyond that, uh, what what are we going to do if he, if he uses if he uses chemical weapons, not the Ukrainians? He's probably talking about the Ukrainians to give himself an excuse to use them. But look at the exactly. red line that Ob look at the red line that Obama drew. Who was his vice president? Joe Biden. How good was the red line in Syria? Useless. In fact, you know who bailed uh, Obama and Biden out? Putin himself. So he knows exactly how far he can go without us doing very much. We are doing all we're probably likely to do. I think it's a huge mistake not to send those uh, fighters in. Uh, they would be, wouldn't be piloted by us. They wouldn't be our fighters. We could have come up with other ways to suggest to the Poles how to get the fighters in, but we are spooked and we have to bear that in mind as well. So are we doing... Uh, let me just ask one more uh, question. I agree with you. We should have, and we should have done it quietly. OK, the polls should not have done it the way they did. Um, we should have done it quietly, pushed them over the border if we uh, have to. And I think that there is a reason uh, the Russians are beginning to bomb the western part of the country. Right. They're recognizing that's where all the arms are coming through. Uh, right. So they might as well, you know, stanch that uh, flow of equipment that we're trying to get in there uh, in in significant volume. But are we doing dove the bare minimum. Although I will say that in the case of uh, chemical weapons in Syria, right, the administration made a calculated decision that as opposed to making, you know, a strike, the, the question was a strike that would just be a slap on the wrist or we collect up all their weapons, right? They took the choice. This is going to devolve. The state's going to disintegrate. We might as well collect up as many of these weapons as we can as this civil war rages. I don't want to necessarily relitigate that, but that was at least the logic they used there. In this case, it's a blatant fabrication in order to be able to move. But move yeah, that but, needle. but look, our, it was a it was a post fab post facto fa uh, logic because he drew a red line. He didn't act on it, and then it was Putin's suggestion to pull these weapons right. out, and we and he bailed out Obama, and Putin knows yeah. this. And so you can't and, walk and, away from that. And certainly, you know, I and, and everybody, I think, on this on this call uh, has has been critical uh, of setting a red line and not enforcing it and what it means for Taiwan, China and elsewhere. But at the end of the day, do you feel, uh, uh, you know, that we're doing 
what we can to make us feel better at the end of the day and allow us to sleep well, that it may not ultimately make as big of a difference. And frankly, does Putin do this, destroy the country and then step away from it and basically says, hey, it's all yours? Well, he, he could destroy the country. I think we're doing more than just making ourselves feel good. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, if the Ukrainians are shooting down Russian aircraft, it's because we've supplied them with stingers. And if they're blowing up tanks, it's because we supplied them with javelins. So, I, I, you know, I don't think we should go to the other extreme and say, oh, this is just a feel good exercise. Uh, my concern is that we haven't really given much thought to, OK, how does this end? Um, it might end that Putin just blasts the place to kingdom come and then walks away. It might. It might not. And of course, if you happen to be a Ukrainian, that's not exactly what you're looking for. And that's why I've suggested that we ought to start thinking about not not now, maybe in a few weeks time, putting out some proposals that might satisfy Putin, ha you know, having done what he's done and might at the same time pr protect Ukraine from getting totally devastated or being absorbed by Russia. And I've listed a whole bunch of those in my Hill article. I'll just, I, I don't know if you have the time for me to mention yep. one. No, 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 please give us, give us a sense. Give us a sense on some of the core elements of that plan. Okay. The, the first one, probably the most controversial, is the Austrian Strait Treaty uh, created a neutral Austria. And at the end of the day, if you look at Austria today, it's prosperous, it's Western, it's part of the EU, and it's not a threat to anybody. And since P Putin wanted to keep Ukraine out of NATO, this is one way to do it. Now, let me be clear, no negotiation should take part, take place without the Ukrainians. Uh, this was one of the big mistakes we made in Afghanistan. We shouldn't make that same. These are just suggestions. Another one is based on the relationship that East and West Germany had, uh, pretty much the life of what was then called the European uh, community, which was essentially that Germanys could trade with each other and West Germany was part of the EU. Uh, given that, uh, you could do the same thing here. Uh, you could also uh, not in include Ukraine in the European Union, but treat it the way they treat Norway and Switzerland and several others, where they have where they have freedom of movement and so on. But if you also have a free trade treaty with Russia, Russia benefits economically as well. Just one last point, because I don't want to go long. How do you deal with the breakaway provinces? Well, in Ukraine, but you treat them like uh, we treat Kurdistan. It's got its own government, its own flag, its own military, its own uh, everything pretty much on its own. And yet it's part of a uh, that might by Putin again, assuming that on the one hand, he's bombed the heck out of Ukraine, but he's still discovered that they haven't given, given in. Um, these are just thoughts. But I just worry that we are not thinking about what to do when there is an opportunity to really do something. Patrick, uh, I want to bring you uh, in, into the discussion. You've been very patient. Um, you know, everybody in Washington is looking for signs on where our Chinese friends uh, go, right? I mean, there was a little bit of hope before this war started. The United States could somehow, you know, achieve the Kissingerian uh, vision of keeping them separate. I should point out, as Dove writes this piece, uh, you know, Henry Kissinger has reiterated his uh, call for, for Ukraine to be Finland, uh, if you will, an independent a nation that maintains neutrality, has good relations with the Russians, uh, while, um, you know, at, at the same time being a very Western uh, nation. Uh, but in, in, in your sense, I mean, the rhetoric, the Chinese, the Chinese are repeating all the rhetoric that um, the Moscow has been putting out, including the fabrications about weapons uh, labs and all manner of other incendiary comments. Um, 
you know, so the Chinese are trying to straddle this sort of be buddies with Russia, make offers to try to help them economically while still staying or abstaining or remaining neutral internationally. What's the latest we're hearing from Chinese leadership and what you're seeing about what, you know, that indicates where uh, the Chinese are going vis-a-vis the Russians or whether or not there are any permanent structural shifts in what they mean? Well, Bago, in the words of a China specialist and good friend, Evan Fegenbaum, uh, Xi Jinping has made a strategic calculation to carry a lot of freight for Russia. And that has significant strategic implications for the United States, especially at a time when we have a new Indo-Pacific strategy. We're hoping that 2022, the administration's hoping at least, that this becomes a focal point of increased activity, of summitry, uh, of major meetings and agreements. Uh, And yet, here we are talking about the war uh, in Europe, uh, Ukraine uh, being invaded by Russia. That's one thing you will not see on the Chinese uh, media front pages. In fact, I was just looking again at the Global Times just because it's a good indicator of what they're trying to peddle for their public affairs. Um, There's no mention of invasion. There is mention of humanitarian corridors. Um, There's mention of the United States trying to cover up biolabs and and, and uh, refusing to, to clarify the truth about these, uh, these biolabs, um, which we know uh, is baseless set of claims. Uh, it's a reminder that before the United States goes out to help people like to clean up Soviet era bio and chem labs, uh, don't expect to be uh, greeted uh, as heroes by everyone around the world later because your adversaries will use it against you. And that's what Russia and China are both doing in their campaign. Think about the, the, the Chinese media are also manipulating um, you know, the fact that there's been airstrikes on a maternity hospital in Ukraine, the world knows it, but that's not what you read in China. What you read in China is that the United States still has not come clean about airstrikes in Syria in 2019, because yes, how do they know? Well, U.S. media have uncovered and talked about, and, and our Defense Department has um, come clean about uh, the fact that there were civilian casualties when we were trying to strike the Islamic State. Um, you know, so the context matters. Um, The fact that we're the ones being transparent matters, but the Chinese and Russians are in bed on this issue because they want to divert attention um, from uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy of the United States. They want to keep the United States uh, off off balance, and they want to keep their strategic partner, Russia, safe because she has made the strategic calculation. He is in bed with with Putin, um, and he, he is going to stay there. Do we see any increased uh, Chinese activity uh, around uh, Taiwan? I mean, the Chinese have uh, a brilliant ability to take advantage of events around the world to sort of do all, all manner of chicanery, for lack of a better word. Um, right? Chicanery makes it sound a little bit more like Keystone Cops or Abaddon and Costello, as opposed to, you know, the sort of more threatening stuff that they're doing. Do we see any sort of change in, in China's posture uh, approach on anything from uh, you know the, the the border of India all the way over to uh, the uh, Taiwanese and and Japanese next of the woods. Well, there is some activity, but um, you know they're selling aircraft to Pakistan. By the way, that's on the front page as well. Uh, maybe that's in contrast to the United States not allowing MIGs to go to Ukraine. Uh, who knows what kind of messaging they're trying to do there? They've been doing a special search and rescue operation that's been disguised as an exercise um, uh, in the uh, off the coast of Vietnam, and that's because one of their maritime patrol crafts, according to Taiwan intelligence, went down recently, and they've been hunting for that, but they haven't come clean about why they're doing that. Um, nonetheless, it serves a dual purpose because it allows them to harass the other claimant states, Vietnam, uh, Taiwan. The Philippines and so on. 
Um, you know, they're mostly trying to, they, they've also just announced uh, that they're going to set up a, a missile base uh, a facility hub in Bangladesh, which is a kind of a clear message to India that Bangladesh is now in the, you know, moving toward the Chinese orbit. Um, and uh, they're castigating Peter Dutton, the uh, Australian defense minister for stoking conflict with Taiwan. And they're going after him in a fierce ad hominem attack uh, right from the defense ministry spokesman out of Beijing. Um, and it seems to be that, again, they want to deflect from what Russia's doing. They want to divide the allies, especially in this case, Australia, before they have an election in May. Um, and, you know, perhaps put the conservative government on their back feet and, and give labor a chance to win. Um, you know, so they're mostly playing the political economic game. They've been just wrapping up um, this week their party's highest policy advisory committee. So remember, they're focused mostly on economic security, social stability the party integrity. It's these internal goals that are still driving most of Chinese right now. And meanwhile, they're just trying to protect themselves from the Russian war from the US. I should also mention that you've got US officials uh, you know, in the region right now, right? You've got Assistant Secretary of Defense, uh, Eli Ratner, along with his state counterpart, um, Dan Crittenbrink, um, you know, going to Japan for a two plus two meeting, going to Korea to meet with a new government. Um, and at the same time, um, you had Admiral Aquilino, uh, Indo-PACOM commander uh, on the Hill this week. You had General Kamara, our top commander in Korea on the Hill. Um, major testimony, but none of that is getting much purchase here in the United States um, or, or necessarily in the region. But that's where the administration wants to pivot toward more emphasis on Indo-Pacific. And we're being denied that. The oxygen's being sucked out of the room by Russia's uh, ongoing war against Ukraine. Um, let me uh, just very quickly, um, the uh, Pentagon announced that the Red Hill uh, fuel facility in Pearl Harbor is going to be closed. That's obviously one of the world's leading strategic stockpiles that dates from World War II uh, for us to forward position oil in the bottom of a giant stone mountain. Uh, and unfortunately, we've known that for quite a period of time that's been leaking and constitutes a massive environmental hazard. And the de decision has been made to close it. The, the issue always, and this dates back to when Dove was, was comptroller, uh, the, the point was it's such a critical facility uh, that you get caught on the horns. Is there any sense that the department has sort of figured out uh, what it wants to do with that? And I want to briefly ask you a North Korea question as well. I have relatives who live there, and they're very deeply concerned about the environmental costs. But at the same time, they want to make sure that our Navy is extremely capable so that they, we have to spend the money and invest in the infrastructure that can keep our people safe and our society safe, but at the same time, provide uh, the logistics capabilities that we're going to need to protect our country. Uh, and let me ask you about uh, the changing leadership in South uh, Korea, as well as new uh, missile tests. Yeah, the ICBM uh, is the revelation here. Before I even get to Yoon Sok Yeol, who is the president-elect, the conservative uh, opposition leader, who has now just been elected by a narrow margin uh, in an impressive election uh, in Korea, where 77% of the people voted, um, you have um, uh, the last two missile tests of the 11 ballistic missile tests conducted so far this year by North Korea, where apparently, according to government analysis, uh, you know, after the fact. We're, we're perfecting the Hwasong-17 mobile ICBM. This is a monster ICBM. It was dubbed that when it was seen at a military parade for the first time uh, two years ago. Um, and it appears that under the guise of uh, space reconnaissance and satellite uh, launches, 
North Korea is going to be marching and creating and perfecting this ICBM capability, perhaps next month in April when they have uh, special anniversaries. And that also precedes by a few weeks the inauguration of Yoon Sok-yeol in South Korea when he moves into the Blue House in, in May. Uh, and indeed, President Biden may be out there in, in the latter half of May. Um, you know, North Korea will have already uh, set the table for high tension. So here you've got Yoon Sok um, Yol, who wants to resume alliance military exercises that uh, the current South Korean government has been wary of, about doing because they want to make sure there's a peaceful, stable environment and kind of appease uh, Kim Jong-un. Um, but he also, Yoon Sok Yol, wants to uh, ramp up uh, the, the kill chain um, kind of preemptive strike capabilities and missile defense capabilities in kind of punishment strategy in, in tandem with the United States alliance. So he's saying everything that, um, frankly, American national security folks would like to hear, um, but he's, he's going to have to be coming into the Blue House just when North Korea has created more tensions and, and will be putting uh, the alliance saying, you can't uh, upset this or we'll, you know, maybe we'll, we'll fire off a nuclear weapon. So it's a, it's a very fraught uh, period of time with North Korea ramping up again. Um, and this is going to be uh, quite a challenge for a man, Yoon Sak-yeol, who also says he wants to work very closely with Japan. We haven't heard that out of many South Korean presidents. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a steep climb, but it's, a, it's exactly what Washington wants to hear. Uh, Michael, I want to bring you into this because as we've been taping this, the president has asked Congress to end uh, normal trade relations with Russia. This would be imposition of more uh, tariffs. What do you think the inclination of Congress is uh, to get even tougher on Russia? Uh, I think the strong bipartisan support to get tougher on Russia. I think in addition to passing the Omni this week, the House before they left uh, session uh, also banned the import of Russian oil and gas, even though the president was taking action to do that anyway. And that passed with only 17 uh, people voting against it. So and the people that are going to oppose it are going to be people in the very, very far left, like Ilan Omar has come out against everything the administration is doing. And then a few Freedom Caucus nuts like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Madison Corthon are going to criticize the president no matter what he does. But there's push from both sides to continue to get tougher. So I think the president will continue to have support going forward. And, and these are things that you know, are, are actually helping the president's poll numbers. Um, and so there's some consternation among Republicans, but they also know that, this, that they're doing the right thing here. And uh, there's still plenty of time between now and the election. And, and you think, right, I mean, for all of those who say that we may be actually approaching the bottom of the sanctions lever, you think that there's still uh, a lot of things that the United States would be able to do to put even more pressure on Vladimir Putin? Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like they... they there's, they, they have a, lot, a, lot, a long list of things that they have uh, at their fingertips and they keep showing Putin that they're serious and why do everything all at once and then they, they don't have any more ammunition left in their pocket because there's a line that we're just not going to cross. So I think they can con continue not only through the administration, but by also working with private industries. We've seen more and more companies are, are pulling out of Russia as well. Uh, so I think there's still um, you know, lots, lots of room for them to play with. Jim, do you agree? Yes, I, I certainly agree, Vago. I think there's a lot more we can do. And I think what we're discovering is we have a set of sanctions uh, that the administration developed over the past uh, few months. But what we're discovering is a lot of the private sector is coming up with their own sanctions. Uh, they're voting with their feet. They're doing these other things. And so as time goes on, I think there's going to be more and more opportunity to really put pressure on Putin. And we have to know, though, that the more pressure we build on him, uh, the more apt we're going to start seeing some retaliation. 
and maybe some escalations. So this is going to be a bumpy ride for a while yet. Uh, and Dov, uh, 30 seconds, Naftali Bennett's uh, unique role in this and Iran nuclear negotiations. Take it away. Well, one thing that we reported is that Bennett, uh, although he was uh, coordinating with the United States, the British, the French, Putin, uh, to help him block the Iran deal. And Putin is doing just that. Uh, the the Arabs, the Israelis are terrified. There was talk to be a deal this week. Um, and of course, Putin is spanner into those works by simply saying, OK, uh, if you're going to sanction me, I am not going to go and, and let the Iranians pump more oil uh, and make uh, and drive down the price, which will hurt me. So uh, he's basically playing uh, he's, he's playing payback here. Uh, and uh, in so doing, uh, he's actually winning friends in the Middle East. And oh, by the way, uh, the Israelis, of course, uh, were very reluctant uh, initially to criticize Russia, as were the Saudis and the Iraqis, who, by the way, are not uh, very popular on Capitol Hill right now. So uh, you've got a complex situation here uh, that Putin is, as usual, trying to play to his advantage. As, as we know, right, I mean, there's been an exodus of super yachts uh, from uh, ports uh, all around the world, especially in the West, to not get them impounded. They've all flowed to Vladivostok. And interestingly, uh, the uh, Emirates are making clear we really, uh, you know, we, we have friends all over the world. The Russians remain friends. We see no reason to sanction them. Right. So uh, obviously, well, it's, it's uh, oligarchs are that. finding haven there. It's more than that. Russian money is flowing into Dubai. The, the oligarchs have found a safe haven in Dubai, and that's just going to complicate American relations with the Emirates. And uh, who knows how that plays out? Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Hope everybody has a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.